dating and they're going to get married and it's everything they've ever wanted and then like a week later they realize it's terrible and they hate it. How many times have we, have we really sought achievement in our jobs, in school, to get an A, to get a raise, to get whatever, only to turn around and immediately have to do more? To dig deeper. I love the, uh, the, movie, um, the movie Madagascar, where uh, in the first one, the, it's the, the penguins. Their whole goal is to steal a ship and get back to Antarctica. And they get there, and they realize it's just a slab of ice. That's it. And so they just leave. I love it. How many times have we gotten the thing that we longed for, and we realized that it, that it wasn't all that we had hoped? Because if these are the things that we're seeking, then everything is hopeless. And Paul makes that case in 1 Corinthians. He says, if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christians of all people are to be pitied. That if there is no resurrection of the dead, that right now we are wasting our time. We could be asleep or, well, with the weather, we'd just all be asleep. That'd be better. But, um, but we're looking at this question, why do you seek the living among the dead? That this is a question that is an invitation for us to enter into what God is doing. And so this, the angel's question here is simply an invitation to believe in the resurrection because it's true and because it changes everything. That this is the thing, whether we know it or not, this is what we hope for. This is what we long for. We need to believe the resurrection because it is true. Because this question, the, the, why do you seek the living among the dead? The, in, in this moment, I think a lot of times we, we read the Bible and we, we like to uh, turn it into illustrations or allegory or whatever. But the angels are literally asking them a, a very practical, real question. You are looking for an alive man in a graveyard. It's literal. They're looking for a dead man, and, and he's not there. This is the central claim of Christianity. This is what everything that we do rises and falls on, that Jesus Christ died on the cross, and to quote the great American philosopher Dwight Schrute, was as dead as any animal that has ever died. And it's notable because he's not dead anymore. That he died and he rose again. Yaroslav Pelikan, a theologian, says that if Jesus Christ rose from the dead, nothing else matters. And if Jesus Christ didn't rise from the dead, then nothing else matters. That this is the most important thing that we can possibly pay attention to. And Tim Keller, I think, expounds on what Pelican says. He says, if Jesus rose from the dead, then you have to accept all he said. If he didn't rise from the dead, then why worry about any of what he said? The issue on which everything hangs is not whether or not you like his teaching, but whether or not he rose from the dead. And in, in his book, um, Hope in Times of Fear, which is a great book, you should read it, uh, Keller, Keller talks about going to this anti-war protest in the 70s, and everybody's there, and they're, I guess, protesting a war, and which is what you do at an anti-war protest. Uh, but Keller walked around with a sign that just said, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is intellectually credible and ex existentially satisfying which I'm sure is the message that people were excited to see that day. But if you think about it, it's actually, it's actually intellectually less credible to believe that the resurrection was made up. It makes less sense than to believe that the resurrection was a hoax than to believe that it happened. Because every single explanation 
that has sought to explain it away has made less sense than accepting that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. Some people suggest that he didn't actually die, that he just passed out, and that this group of Roman soldiers who were professional murder machines were like, oh yeah, he's he's probably dead. We're not going to double check on that. They just missed this one. Others suggest that the disciples, this group of sniveling cowards who were hiding away in an upper room, uh, somehow snuck past those murder machines to steal Jesus' body. They somehow pulled that off. Some, some would suggest that uh, Jesus never actually rose again, but his followers simply deluded, uh, deluded people into believing it, which would suggest that a group of people who are presented continually as not believing anything that they saw would somehow have just completely changed course and made something up and stuck to the story. Oh, yeah, and they would end up overthrowing the Roman Empire. So if you were, if you were making any of this story up, you would have had to have done so much of a better job than this. Because even as Luke tells us that it's Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James and the other women who, were, who, who went back to report that Jesus had risen. In this time, a woman's, a woman's uh, testimony was not even admissible in court. That it would have been dismissed on its face just because a bunch of women said it. And yet, that's who Luke tells us bore the good news see if you dismiss the resurrection of jesus the burden of proof is on you to explain why the church grew the way that it did why no other messianic group in history has believed that their leader rose again from the dead and why a significantly sized group of jews who had been explicitly taught from the time that they were babies that they were not to worship a man suddenly heralded this man as the resurrected son of god that they began to worship jesus that why these same jews who did not believe in a personal resurrection of the dead all of a sudden started believing in one apart from the resurrection being true how do you explain any of that and the answer is i don't think you can but if you look at verses six and seven here Uh, The angels remind uh, the women at the tomb that that this was actually what Jesus said was going to happen. Like, think about, think about how cool it is. Um, Like, I'm I'm a big, I'm a big sports fan. Um, I went to Ole Miss, so I'm not talking about last night yet. But um, think about, think about like, think about like the 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 great old like black and white footage of of Babe Ruth walking up to the plate and like calling a shot and then hitting a home run. Like, that's pretty cool. Now imagine he does that, except he says, I'm going to die and then rise again. Like, that's even better, right? That Jesus calls that shot. He says, the angels say, remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. See, Jesus in his earthly ministry had told them over and over again, this is what's going to happen. That when Jesus would perform great miracles, healing the sick, feeding people, uh, doing all the stuff that he did, he would continually tell people, don't tell anybody about this. Because he wasn't going to be known as this guy who taught some cool things and like knew a few party tricks. He was going to be known as this, as the resurrected Lord and Savior. So again, Paul says, if you're going to disprove Christianity, all you have to do 
is show that Jesus did what every single other person who has ever lived on the face of the earth did, and they died and stayed dead. And yet, he didn't. And so Paul says that because this is true, we have hope. And it doesn't necessarily have to make perfect sense. Right? Because if you think about it, what's the, what's the, uh, what's the motto we've heard over the last you know, two, two and a half years? Trust the science. Believe the science, right? Science tells us that a person doesn't come back to life. It doesn't make perfect sense necessarily, but it doesn't have to. Because think about it. We see here in verse 12 that Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen cloths by themselves. And he went home marveling at what had happened. He went to the place he knew that his friend's body was supposed to be. He sees the linen cloth that he was wrapped in. And something's not adding up for him. And, and Luke tells us that these stories sounded like idle tales. That the people that heard them initially didn't connect it, it just it didn't sound right it wasn't it didn't fit right and yet it was still true and so my encouragement to you is that even in the face of your doubts even in the face of skepticism or curiosity or whatever you want to call it it doesn't have to make perfect sense but it is true it is something that really happened. And again, we're coming back to this. If you're going to make up a story about someone rising again from the dead, why would you make his best friend be the person who had the hardest time believing it? You wouldn't. So in, uh, in Hope in Times of Fear, Keller quotes this John Updike poem. He says, let us not mock God with metaphor. Analogy, sidestepping, transcendence. Making of the event a parable, a sign painted in the faded credulity of early ages, earlier ages, let us walk through the door. I think what, what Updike is saying here in this poem is that it's actually, it's actually mocking God to think of this as simply an illustration or a metaphor. That if you, if you find that poem or if you have that book, uh, that, that Tim Keller book, Hope in Times of Fear, go and read the entire poem. Because um, it's, it's way too long. I would have read the whole thing. But, um, but it's beautiful. And it's so poignant of what it's saying that, that, that this is a real flesh and blood resurrection. It's not a parable. It's not, simply, it's not simply something we look back and say, oh, those ancients, they were so dumb, they would believe anything. No, it is mocking God to assume that this is a metaphor. And that Jesus is alive, he has a physical body, but he is currently seated, seated at the right hand of God the Father. And I love it, if you, if you go ahead in Luke 24, uh, there's, this, there's this passage in uh, verses 36 through 49 where Jesus appears to his gathered disciples, and they're all kind of like, um, what, what's up, Jesus? Like, what's going on? And, 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 and Jesus just walks in and he's like, hey, um, do you have anything to eat? Like, how relatable is that? that? Like, the first thing you show up is just like, look, I realize this is cool and everything, but like, I, I really need something to eat. But, but what Luke is doing here is, is, is it is establishing and just laying down this foundation that Jesus is resurrected in a real body, in flesh and blood. And so, 
when you're dealing with the resurrection, you're not dealing with merely a symbol or an idea. You're not dealing with a story you can look to to maybe glean some hope or some encouragement for a new year. But you're dealing with the Son of God who came and lived a perfect life and died a brutal death and yet lives again. That this is the central claim of everything that we say that we believe. That Christ is risen. And because it's true, because it's true, this changes everything. Romans 6, 5 says that if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Paul's saying that if Christ rose, we will share with him in that resurrection. It changes everything. Why do you seek the living among the dead? It applies to the moment that they're there at the tomb, and it applies to us today because we're all seeking to be made right from something. We're all, we're all longing for something to be set right in us. We all know that we're broken. Maybe we know that that's a, a mental health issue. Maybe we know it's a, a sin issue. Maybe it's something that's been done to us. Maybe it's been something that's done by us. Realistically, it's probably a combination of all the above. But we're looking for something that's going to give us life in a world that can only offer us death. But the resurrection, it heals us in three ways. The first thing it does is that it heals our broken hearts. Uh, I love in uh, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, there's this, there's this uh, really sad part of the book where it's, it's between the part where um, Lucy and, and Susan have, have witnessed, um, they've witnessed Aslan's death, and, and, they, and, they, and they see his body, it's tied up on the stone table, and, um, and, 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 and Lewis just talks about how they just sit there. And he writes, he says, I hope no one who reads this book has been quite as miserable as Susan and Lucy were that night. But if you have been, if you've been up all night and cried till you have no more tears left in you, you will know that there comes in the end a sort of quietness. You feel as if nothing was ever going to happen again. At any rate, that's how, it, uh, that's how it felt to these two. And I love that because, because Lewis has this, especially in the Chronicles of Narnia, but he's just such a brilliant writer, that he has this way of like kind of pausing the story to speak to the reader. And if we, and if we think about it, if we put ourselves in those shoes, we've, we've all been there in one way or another. I mean, just think about the last two and a half years of everything that's happened. This pandemic that just won't seem to go away. Death, elections, protests, riots, police violence, church infighting, finding ways to just other everybody else. And, and y'all, it, it's, this is so sad and it's so hurtful because this is not exclusive to the last two and a half years. This is the way our world works. And it's not even all that stuff that's happening out there, how much personal loss how much personal pain have we suffered? We've lost businesses. We've lost loved ones. We've lost hope. And then there's this, there's this thing that kind of exists all around us called social media that just makes it louder and worse. And it amplifies it by a billion. And then think about, like, what are, what are the alternatives to it? It's just be sadder. It's just drink more. It's just watch Netflix until you, you fall asleep and then, and then wake back up to 
watch more of it. It's turning to things like, like pornography or sex or working harder, just doing your job more, making more money, abusing your body to get in better shape and not good shape, but unhealthy shape. See, see we, we, we're always trying to, to numb it or try to fix it with something that can't fix it. In other words, we are looking for the living among the dead. But if it is true that Jesus rose again from the dead, then there is something to heal it. And it's so much better. Because what the resurrection frees you to do with your sadness, what frees you to do with all your dissatisfaction in the world right now, all the feelings of the weight of the the broken systems of sin and death that we live in, is that the resurrection actually frees you to feel that sadness. It frees you to feel that brokenness. Because if death itself is defeated, then you can put sadness in its proper place. That's actually one of the hardest conversations that I have to have with students. What feels like on a weekly basis of, you're trying to run from your sadness, you're trying to numb your sadness, you need to sit in it. You need to feel it. Because it's when we sit in it and we feel it in the face of the resurrection that we know that this sadness, this brokenness is not ultimate. That whatever sadness it is that we are confronted with is ultimately defeated as Jesus defeated death. And there's another, there's another beautiful paragraph in, um, in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe that after Aslan's resurrection, um, you know, the whole, I didn't quote the one about the stone table and death working backwards because that one's really good too, but um, there's this whole thing where, where um, Lucy and Susan are, they, they see Aslan and, and he's alive and Lewis writes this. He says, it was such a romp as no one had ever seen except in Narnia. And whether it was more like playing with a thunderstorm or playing with a kitten, Lucy could never make up her mind. And the funny thing was that when all three finally lay together panting in the sun, the girls no longer felt in the least tired or hungry or thirsty. See, even without the full extent of knowing what the great lion was about to do, they already knew that in him their deepest longings had finally been fulfilled. And that's the same with us. See, we are all hungering and thirsting for something. We are all exhausted by something. All the sadness, the disappointment, the depression, the anxiety, the hurt, all that stuff that just kind of exists out there that we can't put a finger on but we know it's there, they are healed here. They are healed in the resurrection of Jesus. That if he is really resurrected from the dead, then there really is hope that your broken heart can and will be healed. But the next thing that it does is it, is it takes it to, I guess, a level out. Heals your broken self. And if you go ahead to uh, the end of the Gospel of John, you see this story with Peter and Jesus sitting on the beach. And Jesus, uh, Jesus confronts Peter in a very, in a very loving way. Um, but, um, but we see here that Peter runs the tomb that put yourself like put yourself in 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 in, uh, peter's shoes for a second that in jesus greatest moment of need that he's about to he's about to go to the cross he's about to uh, he's he's on trial and and all these people around peter are like hey like you you know this guy right and three times peter says no three times peter denies 
knowing Jesus at all. And the third time that he did it, uh, Jesus heard and saw and he witnessed Peter's act of ultimate betrayal. And yet, here's Peter walking back from the empty tomb, marveling at what he's seen. Now think about that for a second. Have you ever, have you ever heard something that you just kind of deep down knew that you needed to be true? Even if it was hard to believe. Even if it seemed impossible to believe. Is there something that you have just needed to be true? Peter didn't fully grasp it or understand it yet. But the hope that Jesus might have actually been alive meant so much to him. It meant that his friend might not be gone. But it also meant that the single greatest failure of his life might not define him. And that's where, again, that's where a lot of us are. That there's something about us, there's something that's so shameful and so unspeakable that's been done to us things outside of our control, or there's things that we've done that we know we're wrong that we just try to hide and run from and just don't want anybody to know about, that we're longing to atone for these things. And maybe you know what that is. Maybe, maybe you can point to the moment. Or maybe it's just the needling feeling that you've fallen short of something and you don't know what it is, and so you're going to do anything you can to fix it. You're broken both by your own sin and by the effects of living in a sinful world, and you don't know what to do about it. But the resurrection tells you that even death will not have the final say about you. The resurrection tells Peter that even his greatest failure, even his denial of Jesus to his face, was not going to be the thing that defined him. You will be healed. You will be made new. And Paul tells us that we will share in a resurrection like Christ. Part of what he means is that the darkest days of your life will not define you. That you are not trapped in them. And the, and the final thing that it does is that it heals our broken world. In Luke 24, 36, Jesus shows up to the apostles and greets them. He says, peace to you. That Jesus comes bringing peace. And Michael Wilcox, a commentator I really enjoy reading, he, he talks about this passage. He says, the resurrection happening on the first day of the week is more than just happening on a Sunday. Because Luke is describing the beginning of a whole new era. That on the sixth day, the work was accomplished. On the seventh day, God rested. And on the first day, the new world began. And it's not that this is some kind of like get out of jail free card or like a pass to heaven but this is the whole new reality this is the world that we live in now because if you look ahead to revelation 21 john sees the new heavens and the new earth descending and everything is made new and it's right here with the resurrection of jesus christ that it is again as lewis said that this is death working backwards that the resurrection of Jesus Christ was the beginning of the new creation. And it's why we sing, I think Joy to the World is much bigger than a Christmas song, but whatever, some people tell me that's wrong. Um, but it's why we should sing all year round, no more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow as far as the curse is found. That we're joyfully proclaiming in that song that 
our broken and dying world is actually being healed. And that it will be healed. That thorns, one of, the, one of the original curses of the fall. That thorns will no longer infest the ground. That sickness, sorrow, pain, and death will be felt and feared no more. Not just in a, a spiritual sense, but in a physical sense. Romans 8 tells us that even creation is longing for renewal. And the promise of the resurrection is that renewal has begun. And so if getting exactly what we want can end up being uh, a cause for hopelessness, what's the answer? And I think the answer is getting more than what you knew you wanted. Because there is something out there. See, I think, I think Peter's, uh, Peter's story here is really, um, I don't know, I think it's pretty deep because it, I think Peter wanted his friend to be alive, but I don't think he had any context for his friend being alive. I don't think Peter had any, any real sense of like, Jesus is going to be like physically back, present with me, and yet that's exactly what he got. And that's exactly what we get. There's something that is more true, and it is deeper than your greatest shame. It is deeper than your greatest disappointment. It is deeper than your greatest sin. There is something that is more meaningful than fame or grades or paychecks or relationships or whatever. Because, see, because, because it is true that Jesus rose again from the dead, that none of those things have their final say. That Jesus himself does, as Paul writes, Oh, death, where is your sting? Grave, where is your victory? And I, I, can't, ever, I can't ever think about the, the, the resurrection without thinking about um, the return of the king. And uh, um, when, when Frodo, uh, the Lord of the Rings story, when Frodo wakes up after, after uh, the book and movie's about for a long time, so I'm going to give the end away. Um, so, spoiler alert. Um, but but he, uh, Frodo thinks he's dead. He's destroyed the ring, and he wakes up. He wakes up in the house of healing, and he sees Gandalf, and he says, Gandalf, I thought you were dead. <clears throat> but then I thought I was dead. Is everything sad going to come untrue? And the Bible's answer to that question is an emphatic Yes. That all the sadness, all the brokenness, all the hurt, all the disappointment of the last two and a half years and beyond, all of those things are going to be made right. We long for them to come untrue, and they will. And we know that because we know that Christ has died, Christ has risen, and Christ will come again. We know that the work has already begun, and in just a second, we're going to come to this table to celebrate just that. Let's pray.